It's good to see all of you here this morning. Thanks for being here. I know um, we're new to Pennsylvania, but one thing I'm discovering is that weekends are beach trips. And uh, so, you know, if you weren't here the last few weeks and you're here this week, welcome to your Sunday of the month. You know, it's, it's fine. I'm just jealous. Pity me. Um, hopefully I'm going to get a trip once Paul gets back at some point. I'm going to check out the beaches. I hear they're great. Uh, We are going to continue our series this morning. In the beginning, we're looking at God, creation, and humankind in the opening chapters of Genesis. And what we're really doing is we're we're looking at Genesis through this grid of some of life's big questions. Some of those questions that all of us have asked at some uh, some point in our life, right? Questions like, where do we come from, and who are we, and who is God, and what's our relationship with God? Those types of questions. And whether you've wrestled with them for years, or whether, you know, you just sort of dismissed them out of hand— All of us have asked those questions, and all of us have answered those questions. And all of us are actually always in the process of answering those questions at the same time. And so as we've answered them and as we continue to answer them, those questions are the questions that define and shape our lives. So uh, last uh, two weeks ago, excuse me, when we started the series, we started with this question, where do we come from? And looking at Genesis 1, we said, well, we don't come from nothing, Right? We come from something. We come from a creator God who loves us, and he has created all things that exist. Everything comes from God, and he alone is God. He has a unique authority and supremacy over all of creation. And when we recognize him as our Lord and as our creator, then he brings order into our world and into our lives. So that's where we started. And then last week we asked this question, okay, we understand that God has created all things. He's created us, but who are we? Who did he create us to be? What is it that defines us as people, both individually and corporately? What is most true about us? What matters most about us? And what we said was that God has created us. What's most true about us? If you could strip everything else away, what defines us isn't our career. It's not our earning potential, our income. It's not the clothes we wear, the car we drive. It's not even our families or our friends. What defines us, what's most true about us, is that he has created us to have a relationship with him. That he is our heavenly father and he loves us as his children. That's what's most true about us. Okay, so you hear that and you go, okay, that sounds great. God has created all things. He creates this perfect world. It's perfectly good. And in the middle of it, he drops humanity and he creates us out of love, out of this expression of love, out of grace. And he loves us as a father loves his children. That all sounds wonderful, which raises the question, what happened? I mean, what went wrong? If you look around, clearly this world that we now inhabit is not the world that God intended. If he created everything good and he created us to be his children, clearly when we look around the world, this is not what he had in mind. So what happened? What went wrong? What is wrong with our world? And I suspect that if we were to even pull this room, perhaps, certainly if we were to go outside of here and we would go into Philly or Phoenixville or maybe even around the world, we'd get all kinds of different answers to that question. What is wrong with our world? And people say, oh, well, it's those politicians or it's, uh, you know, it's, it's poverty, it's social inequality, it's, it's Marxism, it's socialism, it's capitalism, it's communism, it's Marxism. I said that one. It's racism, it's chauvinism, it's sexism, right? It's an ism. It's something like that. That's what's out there. Maybe it's something with the environment. You know, it's not enough clean water. It's pollution. It's funny, back in the early 1900s, there was a, a, a competition, really kind of an essay thing that one of the London papers ran. And they asked this question, what is wrong with the world? Now, remember, this is the early 1900s. And so when people wrote in, a lot of intelligent people wrote in essays, submissions, and they said things like women's suffrage, those women who want to vote, 
that's what's wrong with the world. And they said, you know, it's, uh, it's property rights and it's labor unions and maybe it's Germany or France or something, right? But one person, G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite authors and thinkers, he wrote in and he said, Dear sirs, what's wrong with the world? I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. I've always loved that because <laughs> he nails it. I mean, you think about that whole list of all the things that could be bad and horrible with our world. You know what the common denominator is? Us. Us. We're what's wrong with the world. So if what's wrong with the world is you and me, if we're the problem, then what's gone wrong with us? God created us good and perfect too, right? So what's gone wrong with us that then has extended out and rippled out into our world? And to answer that question, we're going to go back to Genesis, where we've been camping out, back to Genesis 3, and look at what has gone wrong with us. And you have to go all the way back to a conversation between a woman and a talking snake. All right, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis 3. And while you're doing that, and I'm going to put it up on the screen, so if you don't have your Bible, that's okay. We're going to put it up there. But while you're doing that, I'm going to fill you in, kind of catch you up to speed on Genesis 2. Because we hit on some of this briefly last week. But I need to kind of set the stage so we're all in the same place, all right? So in Genesis 2, what we find is kind of a, uh, a recap, if you will, of God. He has created the world. He's created everything good and perfect. And then he goes and he plants this garden in Eden, right? The Garden of Eden. And it's perfect and it's wonderful. It adds all these trees with all kinds of wonderful f- fruit. And he takes the man and the woman who he's created and he places them in the garden. And he says, take care of it. And really what he says is, this is your playground. Enjoy Everything that's here, I've made for you. Enjoy it, live in it, love it. Nothing is off limits for you except there's this one tree. There's this one tree that is right in the middle of the garden. That tree, I don't want you to eat from. Everything else is on the table. Anything else you want to do, sky's the limit, enjoy it. All the fruit is yours. But that tree, I don't want you to eat from. And so his command very specifically is, if you eat of this tree you will surely die. If you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Which takes us to Genesis 3, all right? So, Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Okay, now for anyone paying attention, we look at this and immediately we're like, okay, there's nothing wrong with this snake. He's talking. That's weird, okay? And even for someone, uh, one of the original audience, somebody originally reading this or hearing this story, they would have said, wait a minute, there's more than meets the eye to this snake. In fact, this seems to be someone who's really masquerading as a snake. And we go later in the Old Testament into the New Testament, we find out that the snake, of course, is Satan. But you already knew that, right? So let's just call him for who he is. It's Satan disguised as a snake. And what does he do? He comes to the woman. He asks her, let me get this straight. Is it really true that God said you don't get to eat from any tree in the garden? Now, Satan is not stupid. (laughs) We can accuse Satan of a lot of different things, but he's not dumb. He knows exactly what the command is that God has given. He knows exactly what it is. So what's his game? What's he doing? Well, check this out. He's asking this question, and he's intentionally overstating. He's intentionally exaggerating God's command with the intention of engaging the woman and getting her to respond in kind. I'll show you what I mean. Look at what she says in response. Verse 2. 
And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Okay, so the serpent Satan comes and he says, Is it really true? Just help me out here. Is it really true that God said you don't get to eat from any tree of the garden? Wow, that sounds so harsh. And she says, Well, actually, what she do? She corrects him, right? Actually, it's not that we can't eat from any tree. It's just this one tree that we're not supposed to eat from. But then what does she do? She meets his exaggeration. She corrects it, but then she adds an exaggeration of her own, her own overstatement. What did she say? And God said, don't even touch it. What was the command? Don't eat of it, lest you die. And she says, God says, don't even touch it. It's kind of like when you're in middle school. Got any middle school students in here? I'm not picking on you. We were all there. There's nothing wrong with that, all right? We love you, all right? But when I was in middle school, I used to get together with my buddies, and we were a bunch of knuckleheads, you know? And, uh, and we'd get together, and it became at times like these commiserating parties, right? My parents are so strict. You think your parents are strict. My parents are so strict and so mean, you can't even imagine. Now, this kind of left me feeling a little bit on the outs because my parents were actually really lenient with me. We were not going to discuss whether that was good parenting or bad. Get to know me and you can decide, okay? Um, actually, that's probably not a good idea. All right. So I would feel a little bit left out, right? Because my buddies would be like, man, my parents won't let me stay out past 10 on Friday night. And the other buddy would be like, yeah, well, my parents won't let me stay out past 9. And I've got to call and check in every hour. And I'd be like, I didn't actually have a curfew. I'd be like, I don't have to go in at all, but my parents put this chip in my hand that got a tracking device on me, right? I mean, you just kind of find something that you kind of exaggerate a little bit. I try to find things that I could say, see, my parents are as bad as yours. They are. They're terrible. They're mean. Parents. Rules. Bad. Right? And this is what Satan's doing, right? He asks one leading question, one little question. Hey, is it true? Just help me out here. Is it true? He doesn't let you eat anything. You're like starving to death. That's incredible. I'm so sad for you. God sure is mean. No, God isn't really that mean. Although that one that you mentioned it, he is kind of mean. I mean, there's that one tree he doesn't let us eat from. That God, his rules. See, one leading question, and he's already got her playing his game. He's got her playing his game. If this were a chess match, it's like move, move, queen is out, and he's going in for the kill. He's got her right where he wants her. And then in verse 4, it's checkmate. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So here's Satan's plan. Here's his game. First, he creates a little bit of discontent, right? There's something there that you don't have and you want it. And once he gets her to that point, then all he has to do is sell the sin. And let's face it, selling sin is pretty easy. Eve. Oh man, that fruit that you're not supposed to eat, it's not going to kill you. Are you kidding? It's the exact opposite. It's going gonna, it's gonna to change your life. It's amazing. You've never seen, you've never tasted fruit like this. If you eat this fruit, women will want to be you. Men will want to be with you. You will be complete and happy. Life will be fulfilled. You will be like God. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Yeah, see, we, we actually, we hear this in commercials all the time, don't we? But we actually hear it inside, don't we? We've got those internal voices that tell us this at some point. You don't have the voices? 
Some of you are like, I don't think, I, I don't talk to myself. You just did. I'm on to you. Okay. Some of you will catch that later. Okay. So you're thinking, right? And you're, you're like, okay, if I do this, if I try this, if I taste this, if I drink this, if I smoke this, if I hit that, if I take this, if I do any of these things, then, then I will finally be happy. That's the secret. This is what I've been missing all of my life. This is what's going to complete me and make me happy. Everything changes if I just do this, take this, try this. And we've all been there. We've all fallen for that. And see, this is Satan's game. And here's what should scare us. Here's what should scare us. It doesn't matter how much you have. It doesn't matter how rich you are. It doesn't matter how perfect you think your life is. There's always going to be something in your life that you don't have that Satan can dangle in front of you and say, see this, this right here, you don't have this and you want this. See, do you think that you can accumulate enough and have enough good things that if you just got that, those things in your life in order, then, then everything would be fine and then be perfect. You'd never be tempted by anything again. Really? You think that's possible? Keep in mind that Adam and Eve are living where? In paradise, in the perfect world, with the perfect relationship with God, with the perfect marriage, with the perfect little animals running all over the place, with perfect fruit. It doesn't get any better than this. And they still were willing to throw it all away for one lousy, stinking piece of fruit. So what do you have in your lives that's going to keep you from falling for the same thing? See, all of us, we've got this list, right? All of us in our heads, we've got this list that if we were to sit down, and I know you do because I do, and I know you because I know me. And if I'm honest, I could sit down right now and I could create a list that deep down, I believe if I could just check those things off, then life would finally begin to make sense. Things would be better. I'd be happier. Life would be better. It would finally complete me. I finally have everything that I want. I could, I could make that list in one sense. And I'm guessing that all of you do too. But here's the truth. Every time we make that list and we check something off, if only my two-year-old was potty trained, check. That's on my list, by the way. If only, right, if only I had a new car, if only I had a new job, if only I had a new spouse, if only my spouse was different, if only, right, if we've got this checklist, but every time you check off one of those, two more spring up in its place, right? It's like Hydra, cut off a head, two more. Is it two? I don't even know. Anyway, you get the idea, right? You get the picture, You've got this checklist and you try to check it off, but it's always growing. It's always repeating. There's always something else there. And every time we find something else on the list, Satan is there to meet us, to take that thing, that desire, whether it's good or bad, because it's not all bad, right? My two-year-old being potty trained is not a bad thing. Cars are not bad things. Money's not bad things, right? But Satan is there to take those desires, whether they're good or bad, and he turns them from things, right? Good things, bad things into ultimate things. And he says, if you just get this, if you just eat this, if you just try this, if you just do this, if you just say this, your life will be complete. It's the ultimate thing. And then you won't need God. Because once something turns into an ultimate thing, and I don't need God, then I can make myself happy. Then it's just on me. But there's something else happening here, okay? And, you, and we can't miss this. We can't miss this because this is really the key to the whole, the whole thing. Um, while, while Satan is distracting Eve, right? it's a little sleight of hand that he's got going here. Beneath all the deception, all the temptation, everything he's got going on where she's thinking about, now what can I eat from and what did God say? And he's got her thinking about all those things. Satan, beneath that, is planting a lie. 
He's planting an idea, a thought, a lie in her mind. And here's what the lie is. That God doesn't really love you. That's the lie. That's the lie that Satan plants in her heart and in her mind. Have you, have you seen the movie Inception? Right? Um, you guys remember that movie. It was a couple of years ago. Leonardo DiCaprio and Ellen Page and Michael Caine and a bunch of other people I don't remember. But anyway, the point of the movie is, in case you missed it, and this won't really give anything away. Some of you are like, do I need to leave? No, it's okay. Um, the point of the movie is, or the idea in the movie is that, that they can go into, through someone's dreams and they can plant an idea an idea so deeply in their subconscious that when they wake up, they carry on with their life as though it's their idea and it ruins their lives. That's pretty much the the gist of it, okay? Satan is the master of inception. Satan is the master of inception. He asks a question, he twists the truth, and all the while he's planting this lie. You think that God loves you, but he's holding out on you. There's something he's not letting you have. Are you sure that God really loves you? And check it out. Once... You buy into that lie. Once you begin to believe that, once you begin to doubt God's love for you, once you begin to hold on to that, look at what it does. Once you buy into that, there is nothing, there is no sin, there's no action that you can't justify. See, if Eve is convinced of God's love in her life, then when he says, oh, look at this fruit over here, she says, oh, wait, you know, that does look nice, but God loves me. I don't need that. God's taking care of me. God's meeting my needs. I don't need that. Thank you, though. But, but you know what? God loves me. But see, she doesn't believe that anymore. See, if she's convinced of God's love, then when he begins to say, hey, you know what? I'm not so sure if God's really all that great. She says, oh, no, you don't know my God. You don't know my father. He loves me. So you don't have to play that game. I, I'm not going to fall for that. See, God loves me. But she doesn't believe that anymore. She's taking the bait. And once you begin to believe that, then what happens? See, I'm not sure if God really loves me, so maybe I do need that piece of fruit. Because I can't trust God to take care of me and love me and care for me, so maybe I need to make it happen for myself. I need to take matters into my own hands because God doesn't love me, so I can't trust him to care for me and give me what I need. I better do it myself. And see, what happens is we become essentially spiritual vigilantes. Spiritual vigilantes. We're not like the cool vigilantes like Batman and Spider-Man who run around and take the law into their own hands because, let's face it, when Bane comes to town, you can't trust local law enforcement. That's just part of it. I get that. All right, but that's not where we're coming from. We're spiritual vigilantes. We look at it and we go, man, God, you're not good enough. You're not sufficient enough. You don't love me. You don't care for me. So now it's up to me. I'm going to take matters into my own hands and I'm going to make myself happy. I'm going to give myself what I need. I don't trust you to save me, so I better save myself. We become gods, don't we? So we've got to take matters into our own hands, and that's sin. That's the, the essence of sin. It's to say, you know what, God, I don't trust you. I don't believe you. I don't trust your care and your love in my life. So now I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to get what I need. I'm going to take what I need, whatever the cost. And if I have to burn down half of Gotham City, or if I have to destroy people's lives. It doesn't matter who gets in my way. It doesn't matter if I have to lie or cheat or steal or run roughshod over people. Whatever it takes, no matter what the cost, it's up to me. I have to take matters into my own hands to make myself happy because I don't trust that God's going to because I don't believe that he really loves me. See, once we believe this lie, once that lie is implanted in us, that God doesn't really love us, and let's face it, we've all been there, right? Every one of us, we've looked around at our lives at different times, 
we've said, man, if God really loved me, this wouldn't be happening. If God really loved me, he would know that I need this and, and I've been praying for this. And I've been asking him for this. But it's not happening, so God doesn't really love me. And once we buy into that, we can justify, we can explain away, we can rationalize any sin. There's no relationship we won't break. There's no person we won't betray or abandon. There's nothing we won't stop at because it's incumbent upon us to save ourselves, to give ourselves what we need, to make ourselves happy. And about the only thing that can stop us is we need somebody else to step in. We need somebody else who loves us enough and cares enough for us to step in and say, you've got to stop. This is not good for you. All right, so hopefully Eve's got somebody like that in her life, right? I'm just hoping, I mean, where's Adam, right? Hopefully Adam, because it's not too late. She hasn't actually eaten the, the fruit yet. So hopefully Adam's going to jump in and save the day. Where's Adam? Let's find him real quick here. So verse 6. So when the woman saw that the, that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Oh, there he is. He's <laughs> right there. Just standing there, right next to her. Seriously? Come on, man, you got nothing? You're standing there, snake, talking to your wife, trying to get her to eat food that you know you're not supposed to. You got nothing? You can't say, hey, honey, you know what? Maybe, just maybe, we should take a step back. I don't know. Just off the top of my head, it seems like God said something about this. And since he's God, maybe, just maybe, we should consider not eating the fruit. Just, you know, on a whim. No, he's got nothing. He's just standing there. He's just standing there next to her. Husbands, wives, parents, listen to me. Um, and I'm going to pick on you husbands just a little bit extra, okay? Because according to Scripture, and we've talked about this before, you have a unique responsibility for your family, all right? According to Scripture, you are to be the spiritual leader in your home. That doesn't mean you're brighter, smarter, wiser, better than your spouse in any way, okay? And I know you, so I know that's true, all right? But... It does mean that you have a specific responsibility, unique responsibility that God is going to hold you accountable for in a way he's not going to hold anybody else. And if that scares you, it should, all right? But this goes for all of you, right? Husbands, parents, wives, excuse me, husbands, wives, parents, all of you have a responsibility, catch this, to protect your family. That Satan is out there. He's prowling around like a lion looking for people to devour. He wants to destroy your family. You have a responsibility to intervene, to step in, to say, no, this isn't going to happen. Where Adam was supposed to be wasn't standing next to her. He was supposed to be, to be between her and the snake. Uh, there was a, a really sad story, really sad story. Uh, when I was uh, working at the church in Dallas, there was this family, and uh, there's this sweet girl, sweet high school girl. And she, anything that she could get mixed up in, she did. I mean, drugs, alcohol, she would sleep with any guy who gave her the time of day, and she'd be missing for days on end. And we were able to sit down with her at one point. What we discovered was that no one had ever told her no. Her parents had never intervened. They'd never given her boundaries. They'd never said, stop, you know, this isn't good for you, Ever. And now she was convinced that they didn't care about her. They didn't love her. 
And we went, we talked to the parents, sat down with her, with them. And it was like, hey, you know, your daughter's dying out there, right? You, you, you see this. You know what she's involved in? I mean, she's, you're telling us that she's missing for days on end. You know this is going on. And, and we think that you just need to, to get her attention. You need to tell her that you love her enough to say no. And they said, you know what they said? They said, we don't want to, we don't want to intervene. We don't want to interfere. We, we don't want to offend her. We don't want to drive her away. You know, we just want to be here. We'll just be her buddies. And whenever she comes home, she'll just know that we love her. And all that time, she is dying out there to know that somebody cares about her enough to say, stop. That somebody loves her enough to say, you can't live like this. Husbands, wives, parents, listen to me. Care enough about your spouse. Care enough about your family. Care enough about your kids to intervene, to step in, to say, we can't live like this. This isn't going to work. That's Satan. That's bad. We know this isn't according to God's word. We're not going to go that way. There's no place for that in our home. Now, look, it's not just for within that family, though. We're a family, too, okay? So some of you, you're not husbands, you're not parents, you're not spouses yet, okay? I get that. Listen, all of us, if you're out there by yourself, Satan is waiting to pick you off, all right? This is why we talk about having accountable relationships. It's so important. You've got to have somebody in your life who's going to come alongside you and say, hey, listen, that's not good. You've got to stop. You've got to not go that way. Because if we don't, then we're just going to get picked off. Because once we start to believe that lie that God doesn't really love us, unless someone else steps in, we can justify, we can rationalize, we can explain away any sin. Any sin. All right, I could keep going on that, but we've got to keep going. So I'm going to move on. Verse 7. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together. And made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So evidently sin makes you stupid. Um, (laughs) We're going to hide from God. Great idea. Before we judge them too harshly, let's just keep in mind that this is what we all do, right? We're going to hide our sin from God, that somehow he doesn't know that this stuff is going on. Like, we've got secrets from God. Yeah, see, we all do this. Sin actually does make us stupid. That's another sermon. Okay, keep reading. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So now they're playing the blame game, right? Adam, what happened? You've got some explaining to do. Not me, Lord. It was that woman. By the way, you made her. So, you know, I'm not saying it. All right. So it's that woman. She's the one who did it. And the woman says, oh, no, no, no. It's not me. It's that serpent that you made also. Um, By the way, he's the one who did it, right? They're looking for a scapegoat. Somebody else to pass the blame to. Why? Because when we don't believe that God loves us, see, it goes back to that. If we don't believe that God loves us, then he is not our heavenly father who's coming to us, even when we sin, to lovingly, graciously discipline us, to correct us for our own good. Instead, he's this big, evil, mean God, and we've displeased him, and now we better run away and hide. And if at some point he catches us, right? If at some point, somehow, he finds out, 
which is God's grace in our lives, by the way, when we have that conviction of sin from the Holy Spirit, that's God's grace in our lives. But when that happens, we begin to make excuses and we find other people to blame or other circumstances or whatever it takes. We're going to pass the blame. And so this becomes the pattern that, that these are first parents, right? Way back in the Garden of Eden that they set for us. They, they begin to believe this lie that God doesn't really love them. And because of that, they take matters into their own hands. And they're going to sin. They're going to do whatever it takes to make themselves happy. And then they've got to run away from God because he doesn't love them. And if he finds out, he's going to be mad. And they try to hide from him. And then they try to pass the blame. And their pattern is our pattern. Because that lie, that lie that God doesn't really love me, it has haunted us ever since. It's haunted us ever since. It is lodged in the heart of each one of us. Where every single one of us looks around in our lives and we say, man, if God really loved me, I wouldn't have lost my job. I wouldn't have lost my spouse. I wouldn't have lost my child. If God really loved me, then he would know that I've been praying for this to happen, this to change, this to get better, and it's not happening. So God doesn't really love me. And so then we become spiritual vigilantes. And we've got to go and take matters into our own hands. We've got to do whatever it takes because God's not going to look out for us. So we're going to make ourselves happy. And then we run away from God. See, it drives us further away from God and further into sin. And then when we get found out by someone else or by the Holy Spirit convicting our hearts, we pass the blame. All because we believe this lie that God doesn't really love me. But does he love us? I mean, does he really love us? I mean, how do we know? I know we come here on church and we sing about God's love, but how do we know that God loves us? Because everything that I just described is true. Everyone in this room, everyone who is here, we've all lost things. We've all experienced that. We've all lost things that we love, things that, we, that were good for us. We've all prayed for things to change and for things to be different, and God hasn't answered. He said no. So does God really love us? I mean, is it true? How, how do we know that? Do you want to know how we know that, that God really loves us? You remember, what, what do Adam and Eve do right here at the end? What do they do? When they finally get caught, God catches them. They try to find a scapegoat. Somebody else to pass the blame onto. You know how we know that God loves us? Because he gave us a scapegoat. It's not Adam, and it's not Eve, and it's not the snake. The devil made me do it. No, it's God himself. See, Jesus becomes our scapegoat. Jesus takes all of the, the guilt, all the sin, all the shame, that we deserved, he takes all of that upon himself and he gives us the blessing that we don't deserve. Do you want to know how God loves you? Do you want to know that he loves you? Look at Jesus. He, he's the proof. You want to know that God really loves you, that he treasures you, that he would do anything for you? Look at Jesus. He went to the cross for you. He died for you. You want to know that God, even in the midst of whatever's going on, that you are his precious child. And even though he says no sometimes, even though he allows tragedies in our lives, that he still treasures you, he loves you, you are of infinite value to him. You know how you know that? Because Jesus died for you. He's the proof. He went to the cross for you. He died for us. He took everything that we deserved on himself. 
so that we could be free from sin and we could experience God's love. He's our proof. He's our proof. Last thing, and then I'm done. When you leave this week, when you, when you go out this week, you leave here, um, you're going to be tempted this week. What? Yes, I know it's going to happen. Um, it's going to happen. You're going to be tempted. And you're going to be tempted to believe this lie that God doesn't really love me. And it's not going to look like that. It's not even going to sound like that. You're going to be tempted to yell at your spouse. You're going to be tempted to be short with your kids or badmouth your boss or gossip with a friend or any number of things, right? You're going to be tempted. And if you trace those back, all of them, they all go back to that lie. God doesn't really love me. And so as you leave here this morning, I want to give you something to remember. All right. I've tried to make this as, as just as practical as I can, which whenever you take something, try to make it practical, it automatically becomes corny. So just, it's going to be corny. Eh, deal with it. Okay. But I, I'm, I'm serious about this. I want to give you three statements to remember. When you're driving down the road and somebody cuts you off and you're ready to flip them off, here's what you're going to say to yourself. You're going to say, God does love me. Christ died for me and I don't need this. See, God does love me. I'm not going to believe that lie. I'm not going to fall for that, that God doesn't really love me. So I got to take this into my own hands and I got to respond in kind. I've got to hurt someone who hurts me. No, God really does love me. God loves me. And how do I know that? Because Christ died for me. And because of that, I don't need this, whatever this is. God does love me. Christ died for me. I don't need this. Those are not magical words, all right? Just to be clear, this is an abracadabra. There's nothing magical about those, but those are true. Those are true. And the way we fight lies is with truth. And so it's not the words, all right? But when we actually begin to believe that, when we, when we internalize that, when that becomes the cry of our heart that God does love me, that Christ died for me, and I don't need this, then it's not going to like break every sinful pattern in your, in your life. It's not going to solve all of your problems, but I promise you it really will. As it begins to be the heartbeat of your soul, then it will change and it will break patterns of sin in your life. You will experience new freedom from sin. Not because you said those words, but because it's true that God does love you. Christ died for you. I don't need this. Say it with me. God loves me. Ready? God loves me. Christ died for me, and I don't need this. It will, God will use it. It's nothing magical, but if we believe it, it will break patterns of sin in our lives. Because he loves us. He died for us, and we don't need it. Father, we just come to you this morning. We're so thankful that Despite the lies that we are encouraged to believe, you do love us. And the way that we know that is because your son died for us. And Christ, I, I just pray for anyone in the room right now. And anyone who is struggling and wrestling with that truth. There may be somebody in here right now who says, man, God, I don't feel like you love me. I've lost this. I don't have this. I can't believe this is happening to me. I can't believe this tragedy has come into my life. God, how is it possible that you love me? And I pray that right now they would know your truth, that you love them, that you adore them. And the proof is at the cross. That Christ, you were willing to go and to take what we deserve. You were willing to be our scapegoat, to take what we deserve so that we could have the blessing that we don't. 
God, if there's anyone here struggling, God, and I know we all are in different ways, all of us at different times, we fall for this lie. God, give us truth. Help us to remember that you love us. Your son died for us. And we don't need sin. Amen. Amen.